back. Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I am, of course, Simon Taylor. And it's been a while since we were making some new Blockchain Insider content and chatting about all things crypto, but I am so excited to be back because, my goodness, a lot has changed in the world of crypto in the year since we were off air. Um, for a full recap, you can check out an episode we put in together with Fintech Insider two weeks ago called Why Does Crypto Matter? Our sister podcast available on your favorite podcast client. In the past year, though, it feels a little bit like fintech and crypto, traditional finance and DeFi, have started to get a little bit closer together. Maybe it's not the currency or the technology. Maybe it's and. And that's getting super exciting. Whether it's PayPal or Robinhood doing crypto, whether it's current adding DeFi yield or institutions coming into DeFi, we have a lot to talk about. Blockchain Insider was always in the Venn diagram between those two worlds, and we're excited to bring this show back. And of course, just before we get started, it's not just about us, it's about you. I wanted to let you know that we're going to be launching a community for Blockchain Insider listeners, fans, and the community yourselves to get involved. So check out Blockchain Insider on Twitter for more details. With all of that said, it is my absolute pleasure to bring onto the show my new co-host, who really shares the vision we have for the show, and of course, our sponsor for the show. Welcome, Mr. Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. How are you doing, Kai? I'm doing great. Thank you, Simon. It's incredible to be here. I am pumped for this show. I think we're going to have some amazing guests both today and in future episodes, and we are going to go down the rabbit hole. And I think this intersection of, of fintech and, and crypto and you know, TradFi is, is only going to become you know, bigger and bigger. And so you know, we want to create a community and content uh, to help people explore you know, all the amazing things that can be built here you know, going forward into the future. Let's do it. Well, great to have you with us. And for listeners, of course, in its new form, Blockchain Insider is now going to be putting out shows every two weeks. So that's two episodes a month. One new show looking at the biggest news stories in the sector from the month and where we dive into uh, kind of what does that news mean? And then, of course, a show like this, which is diving into one topic or trend, uh, one per month of those. Today's show is is one specific topic. So today we're going to be looking at all things stablecoins. And we're going to be looking at the evolution of stablecoins. What's a stablecoin? What's a CBDC? How are all of these things different? What does any of it actually mean? I was speaking to producer Laura before the show, and she was saying, when you Google this stuff, none of the articles make sense. So hopefully when you listen to this podcast today, it, we will make some sense of it. And to dig into this, we're joined by some fantastic guests, starting off with Mr. Mike Dudas, who's VP of Ventures over at Paxos. Welcome to the show. Great to have you back on. It was January 2020 when you were last on the show, making some New Year's predictions. Uh, a lot happened between now and then. And you've also moved roles. So tell us a little bit about what you do at Paxos. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, in the past year since I last appeared, I moved you know, back into my traditional you know, decade-long role of working on financial infrastructure. So joined Paxos uh, five months ago after you know, founding the block media and information company in the crypto and blockchain space. Uh, and the reason that I joined Paxos is you know, it feels like a, a company and it is a company that is you know, moving the global financial system forward into a you know, blockchain enabled future. So we tokenize custody trade and settle assets uh, using blockchain technology uh, across a you know, broad range of asset classes. So cash, stable coins, which we'll be discussing today, crypto, securities, and commodities, uh, working with some of the largest you know, 
banks, financial institutions, fintechs, neobanks, et cetera, in the world, uh, and having a lot of fun doing it. If I were to quickly simplify, I'd almost say sort of Stripe for crypto. We're not a consumer-facing brand, but we enable the largest consumer-facing brands in the world to offer crypto products to their end users. I love it. Everybody's got to have the tagline, uh, the elevator pitch. I dig it, Mike. Um, and alongside Mike, we've got Joao uh, Regnato. Sorry, Joao, I butchered your last name already. Uh, I hope I was halfway no, there. No, you're good. You're good. Thanks for joining us. Circle, um, VP of products over at Circle. You guys have had a pretty interesting year. Can you give us just the, the skinny version on who's Circle and what do you do for, for those guys? Sure. Thanks for having me, Simon. And, uh, and nice to nice to see you, Mike and Kai again. Circle has has been around, right? We have been around in in crypto and blockchain. Circle is over seven or almost eight years old at this stage, but always very stubborn about the mission that we have, which is to to transform the way uh, people use people and businesses use um, money in a in an internet based way. We have, uh, I agree with you. I think we have had a pretty pretty interesting year. It's been it's been amazing, kind of culminating. Now, uh, recently, with uh, with the four hundred fifty million dollar raise, and that that's all on the back of of the success that I think we have had in in bringing sort of a new wave of payments and treasury infrastructure for for internet businesses, right? Sort of along the lines of what Mike was saying, we are super bullish and and believe that you know there is a there is a new and, and better way to build infrastructure when it comes to to financial services, whether you are a financial service as a business yourself or whether, as Mike said, whether you need payments processing or you need some sort of banking integration for your commerce or for your to run your business, um, there's just a better way to do this now with with the blockchain and crypto assets infrastructure that has been built in the last number of years. And and Circle is is very much focused on that. So as I said, we we now in in our most recent uh, focus, we we are we are we're you know in in the B two B space. So we serve businesses primarily. Um, a lot of our services are around the the USCC um, stablecoin, the the digital dollar asset that we have launched in in conjunction with Coinbase back in 2018. And what we bring to those businesses is the ability to process payments, uh, to run treasury infrastructure, all in a way that's crypto native uh, and based on on blockchain technology. So that's um, that's been the focus of late. It's been quite a focus. There's a lot of things to focus on, Joao, and thank you so much for that. And let's let's just get started. Um, Mike, I'm going to come to you first, actually, because as we go down this rabbit hole, I know you have a history in fintech. I think you worked at Venmo historically and have have a real kind of exposure to some of the challenges the consumer has with moving money around. So what's broken in the payment system? Like, surely it works. I can move money today. I can buy stuff in a store. Why does it need fixing? Banks are fine, right? So banks certainly serve uh, a very important purpose in you know, many, many you know, folks' lives. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's a significant number of people in the world, you know, billions, who, who are unbanked. So for starters, you know, I think that a future uh, more inclusive financial world is one that we're all working for uh, towards. And you know, one of the most exciting things about you know, blockchains, public blockchains, is they're accessible to anyone, uh, anyone you know who can basically create, uh, who has a mobile wallet, you know, has a wallet can can create one, uh, and they can't be sort of gate kept or or blocked from from doing so. So that's you know sort of the first exciting thing is you know basically accessibility. Uh, the next is you know banks are not always on. You know they're closed for holidays. They're closed you know, many hours of the day. Uh, they 
you know, basically don't have instant customer service and it's uh, very difficult and a lot of gatekeeping happens uh, in terms of accessing your own funds and, and transferring them to others and, and using your own funds. Uh, the next is that you know, a number of the world's financial institutions and, and processes are, are running on outdated technology that's slow, that's clunky, that breaks, that was coded, you know, 60 years ago. That's a systemic risk. And, you know, the, the last big one is it, they're super expensive. So, you know, I think over the years, what's happened is, you know, economic rent through a significant amount of regulatory capture in a number of different countries has occurred. And you've just seen, you know, the cost for a merchant to accept a payment, for example, in the U.S., you know, via a credit card uh, can be upwards of three, three and a half percent. And so I wouldn't say, and, and there's very good reasons, you know, a number of things have happened. I mean, banks introduce, you know, global trust and, and prevent fraud and, and prevent, you know, criminal activity from happening. But what's most exciting about, you know, sort of a blockchain enabled, you know, financial future uh, is that we'll have competition for these centralized institutions. And I think it will bring out the best in legacy financial institutions. And we're already seeing that as they start to embrace you know, blockchain-enabled solutions. So if I think about it as another payments rail, as another way of moving money, I guess, Kai, is that a way to think about it? Is, is that how you would define it? Is It's another way of moving value from, from A to B. And then make it real for me. I, as a consumer, can, I, as a small business, can use this to what? What, what, what do I get from it that I didn't already have? Yeah, so I think one helpful framing is, is to really think that, you know, stable coins make public blockchains useful as payment rails, because now you can represent and transfer fiat, you know, over them. You know, before stable coins, you know, you could use a public blockchain as a payment rail, but that meant you had to use a cryptocurrency. Uh, so that meant you had to have exposure to Bitcoin. There'd be some volatility. You had to convert you know, into Bitcoin from the fiat that you started with, send it over the Bitcoin blockchain. Whoever received it, they might need to convert back into their fiat currency. So it's kind of a clunky experience to really try and use you know, a blockchain as a payment rail when it's dependent upon a cryptocurrency. Now, when you can take a, a traditional dollar, you can convert it into a digital or crypto dollar which is you know represented you know on a public blockchain held in a crypto wallet you can transfer that crypto dollar cross border to another crypto wallet where it settles instantly and whoever receives it doesn't immediately have to go and convert that back into another currency they can hold it knowing that you know that token they have is backed one to one by fiat uh, and so in a way it's you know we think about it almost like you know public blockchains have the potential to be like a global RTP network that works anywhere the internet is that you know you can transfer fiat currencies you know over and we think that that's a really important primitive that you can build a lot of different new payment flows and products and services you know on top of uh, so we're really excited to see where it goes while recognizing it's still really early for what does it mean to be able to use fiat on a blockchain and store it in a crypto wallet yeah, I think RTP, just for the uninitiated, real-time payment, so move money instantly almost any anywhere around the world as, and, and do it with the, in a software-native way, which I think is super powerful. Uh, Joao, when you speak to um, people that are looking at using stablecoins, what problem are they trying to solve with it versus the traditional rails? What are they able to do that they couldn't do before? Yeah, and this has been 
broadening a lot in the recent past. So, um, you know, the, the way that we like to answer that question is, you know, what is the use case for stable coin is, is like, well, what is the use case for the dollar, right? It, it, it's, it's hard for you to put a list together. I mean, the, the, the list is, is, is infinite. We do believe that that's going to be the same really soon for digital dollars, right? USSC, when it was launched, uh, it obviously found product market fit very, very quickly in the, in the, in the crypto trading use case, right? So it's, it's obviously a super useful avenue for, for traders, arbitrators, people who are moving you know, digital dollars around all these, these crypto venues around the world. But as, as time went by and we have, we have a number of customers that utilize it in a, in a really, really interesting fashion, the use cases have been broadening up a lot. Inherently, it has to do with uh, with the quality properties that that Kai mentioned, right? It's 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 effectively a payments and a settlement layer that delivers, you know, in, basically instant outcomes. Uh, you know, super super efficient from a cost point of view, especially for a currency like USDC that lives in in five blockchains now. Some of those, you know, extremely scalable, extremely fast, and uh, and we see. Folks now utilizing USCC and stablecoins for for payments uh, processing use cases. So effectively, you know, processing payments that settle in USCC because that settlement all of a sudden becomes more useful. It has better properties, right? So if I have to turn around into my business and pay a provider across the the world or or disburse that that to to my employees, I can do that in a with with better quality properties uh, from a cost and from a speed point of view. But the most recent use case that I think a lot of folks are super excited about, and we launched a, a few products very recently at Circo, is the treasury side as well. So you you all of a sudden now you have some some forms of treasury products where you can allocate uh, you know the balance sheet as as you are a business and 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 uh, and access yield uh, products that that are just uh, you know not accessible for folks who are who are sitting on on traditional dollars right and that's super interesting from a use case as well that traditional dollar versus um, the the stablecoin dollar i think is interesting so i'm uh, you know a cfo of a mid-sized business and i can hold dollars at a bank or I could hold these stablecoin things, and I might get more of a return from these stablecoin things um, as I start to think about how I run my business, which I think is an, an interesting place to, to start to see those use cases vary. So I'm going to stick with you, Joao. Where do stablecoins actually come from? Because are they central bank money? Are they legal tender? Like, There's a whole bunch of questions, I'm sure, in the back of people's minds. So who issues these things? How are they, how are they made? Yeah, that's, that's a super interesting question. So Circo, when we determined that we needed to have a product in this space, and that was back in 2017, right? We, we set out to, to research what was the best design. And the design that we came up with was, was one that, that covered a number, a number of attributes in our mind, right? Was one that had to be, had to be a, an industry standard or as close as possible to an industry standard. So it had to be driven by a, by a consortium and not so much by a private company. So, so at least for USCC, the way that it works is that uh, USCC as an asset is, is governed by this consortium called Center. And then Center has issuers within, within the consortium, um, Circle is an issuer. And then those issuers are companies that you know are regulated in in the in the jurisdictions that they are uh, operating in. So Circo is regulated as a money services business in you know across all the the U.S. states where that's re- that's required. And what we do effectively, it's an e-money um, instrument, right? For every for every dollar that that a customer gives us, we issue a new USCC token on the desired blockchain, and we hand that over to the customer. So. 
from a regulatory standpoint, it doesn't look that different to um, how PayPal used to operate in the early days. You send your money to PayPal who hold it in a bank account and they let you move that between other PayPal customers, except PayPal was closed loop. Uh, in other words, PayPal customers could only use the PayPal network to send that money easily between each other. Whereas with USDC, you're, it's a bit more permissionless. Developers can kind of pick that up and, and work with it. So so what I'm hearing from summarizing you guys is, I, I love Mike's point about uh, more accessible, more permissionless, and you know, it's kind of people can get their hands on it. There was a point about potentially you can generate more of a return off of holding these things versus traditional dollars. And then the last point is they are issued in a way that is somewhat regulated already and very well understood by regulators in how that operates. Simon, one point that I'll make though is that, for example, Paxos has a slightly different regulatory infrastructure than, for example, Circle and USDC. So we have the we are regulated by the NYDFS, New York Department of Financial Services. So instead of having you know a consortium of private companies that sets our you know rules, uh, risk parameters, you know policies and procedures, we actually propose those, and then they are reviewed by the New York Department of Financial Services, a government regulatory entity, uh, and then those are. You know, regularly reviewed to ensure that we are complying with them on you know a quarterly basis, and so you know that's a little bit different than private companies you know issuing money without direct regulatory oversight. Because I haven't said the L word, um, what used to be known as Libra um, is now known as DM, and and I think there was a lot of concern when Facebook announced that they were going to be launching their own stable coin as as it was sort of um, touted back then, and there's a lot of regulatory backlash about that. And I think unpicking that's kind of helpful to say that actually there are uh, regulations and there are different approaches to getting it done, but there are regulations there that can can help you kind of unpack that. So there's there's use cases. I think there's always the banker at the back of my mind going, this stuff isn't regulated. And actually, I think what you guys have said is, no, there's, it sits inside the framework kind of today. That's, that's a little bit different. Um, and then you talked a little bit about the advantages um, of sort of speed and access and, and that sort of stuff. Kai, I'm going to come to you, though. There's this term that gets thrown around a whole bunch that's CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies. When's it a CBDC? When's it not a CBDC? Does anybody even know? Like, what was the situation here? <laughs> it, yeah. So, so I think first, it's we think it's really critical that you you can't just look at CBDC in a vacuum. You know, it's it can be very abstract of just kind of what is CBDC and just trying to to figure it out without some reference point. And so, I like to use the framework of you know, if you start with a fiat backed digital currency as a concept which I would argue there's significant opportunity and demand for. Then you get into the question is of, okay, who actually issues or mints the token? You know, is it the private sector? Is it a fintech? Or is it you know, a government entity? Is it a central bank? Then it's, okay, what type of fiat, what reserves are backing that token? You know, is it you know, a commercial bank deposit? You know, is it a central bank reserve? You know, difference between you know, stablecoin and CBDC. And then what type of network or processing layer does that digital currency run on? Is it an open you know, public blockchain like Ethereum? Or is it a permissioned uh, DLT or, or some network you know, created by a central bank and who operates the nodes? And so you know, what we could see here is like they really live across a spectrum. And so there isn't really this, I would say that the, the, the core distinction of what makes something CBDC 
is if it's backed by central bank reserves. But now we have you know institutions like the IMF creating these concepts like synthetic or hybrid CBDC, where you know what if you have something that's you know take an existing stablecoin and have central bank reserves backing it? Is that CBDC or is that a stablecoin? But the point of the matter is that there's demand for fiat peg digital currencies. There are different ways that you can design it. And there are different ways that the line between the public and the private sector could play out. And I think that, you know, we'll see approaches that, you know, vary based on the market and based on the use cases. I love that point. It's a spectrum. It's not a binary. It's central bank or it's not. How do you think about that? I, I think I agree completely with Kai. I think I think there is a spectrum there. And and it, it also applies to other things in, in, in history as well, right? It applies to communication. It applies to a lot of other industries where governments, you know, they have a role and sometimes they might be interested in, in, in playing a role in the space, especially when it's regulated, right? Like finance, but, but it, it happened in communications as well. But it does not mean that, because uh, I think I hear people say that, right? Like, uh, oh, CBDCs eventually will, will take over um, the space that stable coins are playing right now. We, we don't believe that's the case. That's, there's going to be a, a spectrum of utilization of use cases. There's probably going to be a lot of, of uh, uh, you know, interrelationship and trading across these assets as well. Because obviously, one of the things that we need to talk about as well is the pace of innovation, right? I don't think the pace of, of innovation that the private sector can drive can be matched by by programs that are usually led uh, from a government point of view. It doesn't mean they can't coexist. And I think eventually people will find uh, the right role for all these different uh, mechanisms. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that in China you see they're sort of playing the role of the technologists themselves or stepping into the private sector with the digital currency electronic payment or DCEP, where the central bank itself is not only issuing the token, but also creating the software and the wallet that the token gets issued in. Um, And there's a really interesting blog by the IMF, I think a couple of weeks ago, that said, should central banks start to play the role of a technology company, do they have the skills of a technology company like an Apple or Google or Facebook or a Circle or a Paxos, a Visa even? Do they have that skill set? Is that what they're good at? Or is the technology that they use to physically print notes and coins 200 years ago quite different to the technology that you need to be really good at digital and then that presents a choice do i want to get really good at technology and sort of force people to use my particular technology or do i want to build uh, a regulatory framework that sort of is inclusive of stable coins and thoughtful about the risks that that could kind of manage uh, manage all of that so mike as you look at the world and you see different approaches playing out how, how do you reflect on that so i I think one of the most promising things that I saw over the past year uh, in terms of you know the US government we'll start there you know working with private industry for you know advancing you know, financial accessibility and money movement was the distribution of stimulus payments and you know basically doing that through you know, private companies not necessarily banks but but neo banks and, and apps that people use and we saw a number of you know, square and PayPal and and Chime and, and many others. So I thought that was promising. I think that probably portends uh, a future in which we it's impossible to predict, of course, but probably is, you know, ha- I think it shows the way that folks might be thinking about how we kind of, you know, move money you know, from the central bank, from the government out to the ultimate recipient of that money. And uh, one thing I will say, though, is that, you know, were there to be a central bank digital currency, for example, in the U.S., 
Uh, I don't believe that you know, were that to happen and call it five, eight, 10, 12 years uh, in the future, that would be the only you know, form of dollar-backed token in a user's wallet. Uh, we're moving to a world in which, you know, if you look at Robinhood, if you look at PayPal, uh, if you look at Coinbase, uh, folks have you know, tokens that effectively are representations of a number of different assets. And you know, at Paxos, we're not just focused on cash, stablecoins, right? We're focused on enabling public cryptocurrencies, enabling commodities uh, represented you know, as tokenized assets in people's uh, wallets. So you know, I, I see a world in which you'll actually have the fiat USD, uh, perhaps alongside USDC, perhaps alongside PAX or BUSD and other stable coins to come. Uh, one world that I get nervous about is one where you have hundreds of those private <laughs> dollars. I don't expect you know that to happen. And I know Kai and I have talked about this extensively. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I think there will be you know, barriers and guideposts around you know kind of who's eligible. And you've seen that. I mean, you've mentioned DM and, and Facebook as an example of where regulators heard a proposal that was perhaps you know broader than than just a dollar backed token and, and got nervous about that. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say I think it's fascinating to to kind of visualize that there's this kind of top down you know government and central bank led approach of how do you design a CBDC. Like, what should it look like? What features should it should it have? What should be the network? And then on the other side, there's this bottom up, open source experimental ecosystem uh, that is, you know, a bunch of developers really looking at what are the use cases for a digital fiat currency. And at some point, I think those two meet in the middle. And the the really important constituency, I I think it, it's the future fintech developers. And you know that's what we're seeing is driving a lot of the innovation for stablecoins is that developers love them that they believe it it lowers the barrier to entry to build a new digital wallet to build a new type of financial service and it's easier for a developer particularly a global developer outside the United States you know to build a dollar denominated product on top of a stablecoin than it is you know on top of you know existing you know fiat bank relationships. And I think the future of payments and the future of commerce and, and finance is increasingly going to be built by developers. And so the types of technologies that you know they prefer and the use cases they come up with, I think it's really hard to design top down and it's more likely to emerge bottom up. Then you have to figure out how do you put the standards in place, the guardrails to protect consumers, but it's easier kind of letting the developers find product market fit and then improving the governance than it is to try and design product market fit before anything's in the market yet. If you're familiar with the development of the euro dollar market, this is the offshore dollar. Um, it was kind of something that when it first appeared, I think in the 60s, you know, the, the US administration wasn't that keen on it. You mean people are using my currency offshore? But actually, it turns out it, banks were using dollars as a way of dealing with, you know, kind of uh, currency risk and, uh, and all of these sorts of problems. And what it turned out to be is really beneficial to the US that the dollar was still so key and it became a real uh, real benefit and what i what i really what came to my mind when you were talking about um, developers kai was the euro dollar for developers like what's this way of having the a dollar like level of stability offshore 
but that allows me to operate with the safeguards and rails kind of baked into it, I think is, a, is an interesting question. And it makes me wonder if we need almost like a Section 230 moment. So you, many of you are familiar with Section 230 in the early days of the internet, which sort of was a first do no harm to the internet and let the developers build and then figure it out later. Now, maybe we're seeing some of that come back and bite us on the antitrust with, with some of the stuff happening in, in some of the web 2.0 space. But actually, you could argue it really helped innovators. Do we need something similar in, in the in, in the regulatory space? Joao, um, as you look at how regulators are responding, like if I speak to senior bankers, I, I often feel like the senior bankers' perspective on stablecoins is worse than most regulators. Have I got it wrong? Do regulators hate this stuff, or what are your conversations like? I'm not the expert in that space, but I but that, but that that wouldn't be the impression that I have. I think. And especially with everything that's going on in our industry in the last, call it 12, 18 months, I, I think I think regulators are much more educated in this space than than most people realize. Um, you know, there there there's there's people that you can have super super deep conversations, and I, th- I think especially the Libra slash DM event right in our industry was was ultimately very positive because it forced everybody to be educated and to really think about all the risks and i think now the the fruits of the of that are are being beneficial for 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 the work that we do for example but in general it's it's actually very positive and i think actually the conversations that we have with bankers to your point simon are are becoming super super interesting uh, you know people are beginning to talk about you know, applications of stable coins in decentralized finance and, and how, you know, how banks can ultimately or should ultimately think about participating on, uh, but also from that from that risk management and regulatory angle as well to DeFi. And it's funny that you just mentioned Section 230 because there's there's a lot of that, right? Who who uh, anybody can can fork any one of these decentralized finance protocols now and, and change a couple of attributes and deploy it again and, and off we go. And all these things are touching all of these stable coin solutions and and how do you go about managing the risk and figuring out the risk that those things are going to create? Because there's so much composability. But I, in general, the conversations that I've been involved with, people are very curious. They're very interested. They're they're not they're not coming at this from a from a negative uh, angle at all. They want to understand and they want to ultimately protect the consumer. Joao, I think we'll come back into some of the conversations that are happening in the TradFi space just after the break, because I think that's super interesting. I've been having a couple of those myself recently, and I do think we could start to get into that risk space in a really interesting way as we as we start to talk through that. So we're just going to take a quick pause while we hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like FinTech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Alrighty, welcome back to the show, everybody. Um, in this second half, we're just going to pick up the conversation um, where Joao left us there with the the traditional finance space and some of the conversations happening with some of the bankers. You know, I found um, Kai. I don't know what you found, but. Um, I was speaking to a bank, couple of bankers earlier this week who were sort of saying that, my goodness, if we could use this instead of some of the traditional interbank payments rails, it would be so much better. And some of the yields available are really, really there. But there's so many risks. How do we start to manage those risks and what are they? Joao mentioned this word composability. What, what is composability and, and why, is that a, why is that a risk? 
So, so composability, or, or as some folks call it, uh, you know, money Legos, I, I kind of prefer that second term, but that, that doesn't fly very well when you're talking to a banker. But uh, it's this idea that you can effectively, uh, just as you do that with software in general, right? You download a library from the internet, you compose that with some code that you're writing and, and you integrate that with a number of other solution components. Now in decentralized finance, all of these components are being built and they are deployed as a public infrastructure that anybody in a super permissionless way can, can leverage, right? So all of a sudden you have money markets, uh, you know, trading markets, effects markets, all of, these, all of these solutions being built as decentralized finance protocols, particularly on the Ethereum blockchain, right? By, by picking the best components out of different solutions, right? By picking maybe USC as a stable coin, you know, a risk management component from another protocol, an insurance component from, from another protocol, and effectively building uh, all of this this infrastructure that that is not it's it's very different from traditional fintech, right? It doesn't start from the user experience and 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 walks backwards from that, but it starts from capabilities and infrastructure and puts that as some something that lives on the internet for people to build applications on top of. Yeah, I love the metaphor that if uh, Robin had built something, Square can't use it. But if in the DeFi world, if your equivalent built something, then you can just consume it and compose it and change it as you see fit. So, Mike, is there an element of risk to that? And what are the thoughtful ways we can start to manage that? Or are there bigger, different risks that you see out in the in the the DeFi and especially the stablecoin space? So, yeah, when we're speaking to you know to banks. Today, we're we're generally speaking to them in a very different way uh, in terms of you know how do we solve existing you know business problems that they have. So that's just again that's been Paxos's approach. So an example would be things like real time payments networks that are operating twenty four seven three sixty five when banks aren't open. You know, but public blockchains are always open you know is there a way for example to kind of move money you know in stablecoin at those off hours uh, and the the key questions that, that we find that the banks will have uh, is is really around things like reserve composition and you know is is the is sort of the the money the actual dollar backing you know that stable token that's moving that stable dollar that's moving you know is it always available is it you know, truly 100% one to one peg does it in you know call it treasuries uh or a dollar equivalent in terms of composability in defi we are still when it comes to the highly regulated institutions like banks we're still at the education phase um where we where they're they're saying well it's more of the well how are folks you know generating that yield and and to your point you know, what are the risks uh, you know, and and I think there's a number of them right so composability is one but I think the most basic is still you know smart contract risk there's just not a significant number of experts in the world uh, in terms of creating you know auditing before putting these you know composable defi you know, protocols out into production uh you know products that are immediately seeing you know hundreds of millions of dollars if not billions of dollars in you know total value locked and so we've seen some you know, some people are asking us questions about you know defi hacks and things of that nature and what you're seeing is interest and i think 
folks are recognizing, you know, sort of the difference now in terms of you're seeing a separation in terms of certain call it quote unquote, you know, blue chip uh, DeFi protocols. And, and I don't want to you know, offend anyone. So I won't name what we think the blue chips are. But, you know, at, at Paxos, you know, with Pax, and I know, you know Circle with USDC, we, we do participate uh, in some of these uh, DeFi protocols, you know, whether it be you know, decentralized exchanges or, or lending and borrowing protocols. But, you know, we are very cognizant and, and wary uh, of kind of you know, things that are brand new and, and perhaps not fully audited and you know, haven't been battle tested. And I think that's going to be the constant challenge is ensuring that people understand uh, the differences. One other thing I'll say is, you know, we've talked about stable coins here. Stable coin to me means something that's, you know, sort of collateralized and, and you know, either you know, backed by dollars or some other currency. We've also seen something that we've had to explain to banks and other financial institutions is that, you know, there are things out there like algorithmic stable coins that aren't fully backed. And, and folks have seen, you know, some of those you know, go to zero or lose their value rather quickly. So I think a new you know, sort of definition around these products and, and really that nuance is critically important and we're doing a lot of education there. I think that's a really important point. Not everything in this space is created equal and there are some things that are hugely exciting and still have risks as everything does. And there are some things that are like so cutting edge and sometimes so dangerous that there may even be scams, there may even be problems in the space. So you gotta be gotta be careful and the rules of the road aren't set yet and the market's not mature. Um, I was speaking to a banker who said, you know, if you think about what banks do in terms of market making, um, actually software can replace a lot of that now with automated market makers and the ability to move move dollars around and generate a yield. In terms of helping people issue debt and bonds, actually the software can can do a lot of that. In terms of cash management and holding on to the asset, like the software can do a lot of that. So if you're a bank, you're going to start thinking like, if the software can eventually replace a lot of our core ways of making money, where do we add value? And there's something really interesting in this, helping manage some of those risks, helping understand that not all smart contracts are created equal. Um, but that means getting educated, as you as you say, Mike. Um, and, and I think on that point, Kai, you know, how do you think about this space in terms of um, not just the consumer consumer adoption, but are there going to be businesses that adopt it? And are there going to be other adopters uh, in the near future? And, and what is the, what do we start to look like over the next um, sort of 12 to 18 months? Yeah, I think for us, some of the most interesting things that we're seeing in the stablecoin space is, is how small, fast-growing online businesses are being built on top of them, where you know people are starting companies in 2021 and they're raising money from investors in a stablecoin. The beginning of the company is founded with a stablecoin as the corporate treasury. And then, you know, the growth in, in paying employees in stablecoins. I think that's another trend. You know, we announced a partnership with FTX. They're paying 50% of their employees in stablecoins. And so you have these crypto companies that are, you know, they're small today, but they're growing rapidly. And they're, you know, wanting to use stablecoins for employees, for vendors, for suppliers. And then we're seeing this expand beyond just crypto companies to non-crypto businesses. And so I think, you know, there is a lot of interest from smaller e-commerce companies, from gaming companies. And I think it's going to really start with, you know, small business, small you know, emerging online businesses outside the United States that have a global footprint, you know, that want to be able to, to have more flexibility for both payments and, you know, treasury. And I think that's what banks are starting to recognize. You know, a year ago, you know, we weren't having that many conversations with banks about stablecoins. 
you know, now every bank we talk to wants to learn. You know, they're leaning in, they're seeing the growth of, you know, just the circulating supply crossing a hundred billion dollars. You can't ignore that there's something here. There's some product market fit. And the question is, what is it? And kind of what role can a bank play? And so I think what you could see is either new platforms emerge, you know, like Paxos, like Circle, that are offering these, you know, stablecoin native business banking products, you know, business payments products. Or you could have traditional banks come in and say, wait a minute, you know, we want to serve these new business customers. Can we offer stablecoin enabled you know, payment products as well? And so we think those are going to be the first use cases way before a consumer is walking in and buying coffee somewhere, paying with a stablecoin. There will be some you know, new online businesses that are paying their entire workforce and suppliers and vendors entirely in stablecoins. It's that old saying that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. When we covered this a couple of weeks ago on our sister podcast, Fintech Insider, we had some stats from YouGov that said men over 50 tend to be very negative towards crypto and people under 34 tend to be very positive towards crypto. I suspect the, and, and women land somewhere in the middle. Um, the men over 50 tend to be, uh, A, have seen a lot and have seen some cycles. So maybe it's experience speaking and maybe the youthful are being exuberant, but also there's a risk of like, actually are those most of the people making decisions in financial institutions right now? And is that, is that a danger to their incumbency? Is that a danger to the future of their organizations? I think there's, there's something kind of interesting that um guys i'm gonna give you like a straw poll as we're, we're coming towards the end of this so time horizon how long until we are spending stable coins in stores joao do you want to do you want to take a stab at that how long till a consumer in the united states is using something that feels like a stable coin to to make a payment in stores and that's reasonably mainstream i'm not sure about stores as in brick and mortar but um online, I think in 12 months, you will see something that's really, really immaterial. I think that's already happening in many ways, right? When you go to, when you go to Dapper, to their, to their NBA top shot game, you know, you swipe a debit card, do you know, and you, and you might top up your wallet, you know, it just shows a dollar amount on your wallet. Do you know that that's USC backing it? No, you don't, but that's already happening today. I think that form of approach, and we work with Kai and Visa for, you know, for figuring out user experiences that can benefit from that going forward. I, th I think we're very, very close to that. I think we're at the cusp of breaking into mainstream for that. When it comes to the actual brick and mortar, you know, that more traditional like payments uh, flow, I think it will take another while, but we're definitely not far from that, I believe. And this, 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 uh, this approach that I think has uh, solidified in the last number of months of stable coins, kind of really finding product market fit on the, on the corporate side first, to then as a final step, get to the consumer. I think that was that was the best thing that could have happened in the space. Interesting, Mike, do you agree on that time horizon? Yeah, so Kai, obviously in Visa, you have know, been on the forefront of you know, stable coin settlement. And so it's being enabled on card networks. I think we'll see other you know, global card networks do the same, I would expect, you know, at some point in the next, you call it six, 12, 18 months. And so, so I would agree, by the way, I think what's most important and what has to happen first is we're going to need to see stablecoin in wallets that reach, you know, hundreds of millions of people. And so, you know, we'll, I think it really does depend, hey, when does call it, you know, Novi or Facebook launch uh, and, and does it have a stable coin in it that is spendable you know what do other folks you know call it cash app or venmo or paypal or any of the popular apps once they have stable coin in them you know since 
Kai and, and Visa and others are, are you know, enabling that blockchain settlement, which allows you to use your stablecoin at places, you know, merchants where you know, dollars are accepted. Uh, as soon as they're in people's wallets, we're going to see them spent at scale because the incentives are there to hold value, as Kai was saying, in stablecoin. And as Joao was saying, in stablecoin, because you can generate you know, higher yield than holding your balances in dollars. Kai, I'm going to give the last word to you on that because I think the fintech and DeFi thing seems to have been really hot in the last sort of six months or so. We saw Current.com and those guys in Neobank in the US have added stablecoin yield to their platform, which is you know, they've got more than 2 million customers. Uh, do you see that happening and, and do you agree with the time horizon? Yeah, so I think we're going to see you know every major crypto exchange and wallet is going to support stablecoins and start to look more like a fiat wallet, where particularly in emerging markets, we think that's going to be a major way people come into digital payments is a crypto wallet will be more accessible. And that'll be the first time they start paying in dollars or fiat electronically is with their crypto wallet. Then we think, you know, fintechs, you know, neobanks and banks are ultimately going to, to come in and create crypto enabled features. Uh, and so I don't know what the timeline will be for things like you know, high yield, you know, stable coin accounts. You know, we've been more focused on you know, payout you know, related products. But I, I think you'll start to see you know, large marketplaces, large content platforms that have you know, freelancers or content creators that are in 100 countries start to do cross-border payouts you know, in a stable coin you know, to those freelancers. And people will start receiving income in a stable coin when you start to change the way that, that people receive income, you know, then I think you know, there's the potential for, for new payment methods to be adopted, as well as many of these wallets will, will start to issue cards themselves. It's definitely exciting times. There's the long tail, there's the fintechs, and then there's the corporates all coming into this space. There's the central banks thinking about it differently. Um, not all stable coins are created equal. Central bank digital currencies are maybe a little bit different too. And there's a spectrum too, like Libra at one side and, and, um, China's currency at the other side, and then everything else in the middle. So if the subject's confusing, it, it's not you, listener, it's probably the subject. But hopefully we've demystified it for you a little bit today. And, and uh, I just want to wrap up today's discussion by asking everybody uh, where they can find out more about you. So starting with Kai. Visa.com slash crypto. Check it out. Brilliant. Uh, Mike? Yes, please check out Paxos.com to learn about our you know, stablecoin product, of course, but also what we do uh, with crypto and commodities and securities. We're all about blockchain issuance and settlement and transfer. Love it. And Joao. Circle.com. And for any developers in the audience, also make sure you check developers.circle.com. Anybody can check our APIs and play with them. Love it. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, remember to go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. My goodness, do we have a lot in the works for you. And we're going to be talking about all of this with you again. So if you can't wait till the next episode, take a look at the many previous episodes we've got in the backlog and get properly immersed in the world. Um, and we're going to, of course, as I mentioned at the outset, try something new. We want this podcast to be driven by you, the community, to decide what we'll be talking about in our community discord. Um, the details will be on our Blockchain Insider Twitter account. So keep an eye out for that um and please do remember to leave us a review it helps them to make the show better and it helps others find it too uh thank you so much check out blockchain insider on twitter and goodbye for now